it's, uh, it's interesting how different it is to tell someone about something that happened versus experiencing it yourself. Like, there's a big difference between firsthand experience and secondhand knowledge. And I, I was thinking about it, I mean, just even things that I have experienced in my life that were significant and now getting far enough along in my life that when you tell people about it who maybe didn't experience it themselves, um, how different it, it is perceived and comes off to that person. Like, I'll give you an example, something that happened that, you know, a little over uh, 20, a little over 20 years ago. It's crazy that it's been that long. And I know some of you are thinking like, oh, like you're talking about 9-11? No, 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 not talking about 9-11, talking about something much more nefarious and sinister, uh, Y2K. Anybody, anybody over 30 remember Y2K? Now there's some confused looks from people in the room under 30 because they're like, Y2 what? Who, like what? What is that? Now Y2K stands for year 2000, like 2000. And it, was, uh, it referred to a, a, a time of uh, concern and anxiety in the, the like mid to late 90s leading up to like the turn into the new millennium. But it was more than just a time of uh, uncertainty for some. For some it was a time of panicking because Y2K was centered around the idea that Almost all of our software systems, which were, you know, at the end of the 20th century, were still fairly new. I mean, only a few decades of software. That most of the dating within these softwares only had two numbers for the year. So, like, my birthday would be 11-13-83. Not thinking about when you get into a new millennium, 01 could be 2001 or it could be 1901. And some of these businesses and record, you know, companies have records that go back before the 20th century, back into the 1800s. And so it would get very confusing that if someone was born in 97, it's like, were they born in 1997 or 1897? There was no way to know. And so there was real fear among quite a few people that, like, the world banking system or, you know, the internet, which was still fairly new at the time, was just going to like crash and fall apart and just like the world was going to go into like some sort of post-apocalyptic world. But on top of that, many evangelicals, us, were convinced Jesus was going to return on January 1st, 2000. Like, it made sense. Like, 2,000 years after he was born, just made sense, Jesus. Like, I heard so many, like, absolutely, utterly convinced that Jesus was going to come back January 1st, 2000. And so there was some, on top of the technology panic, there was a bit of, like, re religious fervor added to the situation as well. And now for Gen Zers in the room and, like, the younger, you may have heard of Y2K before, but, like, if you don't, like, remember living through it, like, I remember it being, like, a really interesting time. Like, there is a big gap between secondhand knowledge and firsthand experience because I remember because I was 16 whenever Y2K happened, like, that that night, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, I was 16 years old. I had just got my license like a month and a half before that. And so there was a real part of me thinking like, seriously, Jesus is going to come back a month after I got, like a month and a half after I got my license? Like, I just started driving. Like, seriously? Again, I was thinking like a teenager, concerned about things teenagers were concerned about. But like, I can remember being at a New Year's Eve party that night. Like, and a lot of us, like, there was a sense of like tension of like, okay, when the ball drops, what's going to happen? Like, is the electrical grid going to fail? Is the sky going to rip open and Jesus is going to come back? But of course, when the clock struck the new year, in fact, we were actually outside, like waiting to see what would happen. And 
nothing happened. Like I remember the moment coming and going and we were confused. And funny enough, like now that I'm reflecting on it, funny enough, a little disappointed. It's like that was a lot of buildup for nothing to happen. Like couldn't the world end just like a little bit? Like just to like feel like like it's fulfilling expectations. And so yet now, years from now, I mean, like I said, we're 23 years out from it now, but even decades from now, people are going to talk about Y2K differently than even how I'm talking about it right now because I was there. I experienced it, that it's going to be understood differently. There is power in having firsthand experience with something. Nothing can beat that. And there's a reason that I bring this up, because we're actually starting a new series today called A Greater Movement, that we, you know, like I said last week, uh, when Jesus rose from the dead, that was not the end of the story. That was actually just the beginning of this whole new kingdom, this whole new life, this whole new movement that began to burst forth and grow into the world, and his disciples got to be a part of seeing that movement break out into the world. And so over the next uh, several weeks, uh, we're going to be kick-starting a uh, kind of a study in the early early part of the book of Acts to see how did this movement and revolution get going in the early church and what could we possibly learn from it. And so uh, just a little background information around the book of Acts. It is commonly accepted that Luke, a traveling companion of Paul's in his early missionary trips, also the writer of the gospel of Luke, was the writer of the book of Acts. And in fact, some people consider that it w- they were actually maybe written at the same time, maybe even considered like two parts of the same work and then later separated because of how similar the language is. Um, like even the intros to both the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts were very, very similar. And I'll actually uh, show you them both uh, real quick just so you can see in Luke uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 1. This is how Luke begins his gospel, where he says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus was the recipient of this letter, the original recipient, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Now, I want you to notice just right from the get-go, some of the language that Luke uses at the beginning of his gospel. He uses phrases like orderly account, handed down by eyewitnesses, carefully investigated. See, Luke may have not been a firsthand experience of Jesus in his ministry, but he knew a lot of people who were. And so he carefully investigated, carefully uh, questioned, and got the information of those who were actually there who witnessed the resurrection. Because Luke understood that firsthand experience trumped secondhand knowledge. And so when Luke continues in the story of the apostles, like after Jesus rises from the dead and after he ascends to heaven, notice the similar language he uses at the beginning of Acts uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. He says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. 
He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. That a lot of people thought like Jesus rose from the dead and then just like took the elevator upstairs immediately. But he was actually among the apostles and other disciples for about a period of 40 days before ascending to heaven. But see, here's the thing that both of these intros show us. And it's something that's very, very powerful, especially as we approach the scriptures, as we approach our relationship with God, and as we approach being a part of, like whenever you become a Christian, you become a part of this greater movement that God is wanting to, you know, unleash into the world. And this is something both of these answers show us, is that the church was founded on intimate knowledge of those who walked with Jesus. It's built on first-hand experience. This wasn't religious leaders passing off second-hand knowledge, things they'd heard to hold on to their religious power. Even someone like Luke, who maybe had not seen Jesus in the flesh, knew personally those who had and recorded their experiences, their eyewitness testimonies, to be as accurate as possible about the life and teachings of Jesus and the faith that he unleashed into the world. And so the introductions of both of these letters cannot be more clear that this movement of God's kingdom in the world was starting through men and women who had personal and intimate relationships with Jesus. And this is very, very important as we move forward. It was found on firsthand knowledge. In fact, one of my favorite uh, passages in the New Testament, and it kind of doubles down on this idea a little bit, is something that the Apostle John, who did, you know, was one of the twelve, knew Jesus intimately. It said he was the one who rested his head on Jesus's, like, chest or shoulder. Like, it was this picture of intimacy. Literally 50 years after Jesus rose from the dead. So by this point, John is considered to be an old man. He writes this to the churches he was pastoring in 1 John 1, 1 through 4. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have, notice this language, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. See, 50 years later, John is still doubling down on all that he saw and heard. He knew Jesus. Didn't just know about Jesus. He knew Jesus. And so this movement of the church, this movement of Jesus in the world, it starts with this intimate knowing of God. Now, I know that may sound all good and well in theory, but people have asked genuinely, and you may be asking this in the room, but this question has been asked genuinely over the centuries. Okay, that's great for them. What about us? We haven't seen. We haven't touched we didn't hear. Like, we weren't there seeing Jesus in the flesh. So that's great. They can have certainty, but what about us? Like, how can we have certainty? Like, the first group of men and women saw Jesus, walked with him, claimed to see him rise from the dead. But what about us? We haven't seen, we haven't heard, we haven't touched. How can we have intimate knowledge of Jesus as well? And that is an appropriate question for any generation of disciples to ask. What does knowing Jesus intimately look like after his resurrection and after his ascension? 
And the cool thing is, is literally at the beginning of the gospel, or literally at the beginning of the book of Acts, continuing right after he rose from the dead, Jesus gives us an answer to that question. In Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 4, he gives an answer. He says, on one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who had been taken from you into heaven will come back the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Now, there are so many good things in this passage, and I'm going to try to hit as many of them as possible. I'll do my best to kind of unpack this passage. So this is Jesus' response to our question that naturally comes up, how, especially for those who come after the apostles, how can we know him intimately now? And verses 4 and 5 give us that, and it's this, that Jesus was saying when he talked about the Holy Spirit coming, he says, a greater knowing is coming. A greater knowing is coming. And Jesus warned his disciples who did see and touch and hear him. He said, wait for the Spirit. In fact, on the final night that he's betrayed, like the week he was going to be killed, he told them, hey guys, it's better that I go away. Which in that moment, I'm sure they're like, no, like no. It makes no sense at all for you. How could it be better for you to go away? Because you're with us. We get to see you and touch you and hear you. Like how could it possibly be better for you to go away? And he says, it's because I'll give you my spirit. And Jesus even hints at what this means in John 16, verses 12 and 13. Where he says, and I, man, I think about this verse a lot, and what G, the implications of some of what Jesus is saying in this. He says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. Sometimes we wonder why we don't know all the things we want to know. But Jesus, in his wisdom, knows, I could tell you some things, but you couldn't bear them. It would be too much. So if there are things that you don't know, there's a trusting that we can have that he knows what we can bear, what we can handle. He says, more than you can bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. Now, the disciples, in some ways, they were still stuck in their old way of thinking about how God worked in the world, and maybe even how you would, if you were to ask them, what does a greater movement mean? Like, what does it look like for there to be a greater, you know, kingdom movement in the world? You can tell how they would answer that question by the question they ask Jesus. Uh, are you gonna, at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Like they're still stuck, and this has been their view of Jesus as the Messiah. Literally the entire gospel story is that 
God's kingdom in this world, this greater movement of the kingdom, was going to be a physical kingdom like David or Solomon's. Like they believed the Messiah was going to be this military ruler who was going to set up his kingdom and, you know, overthrow the Romans and establish a physical kingdom on the earth. And so they're a little bit concerned and and confused that Jesus is not acting like the type of king that David or Solomon would have been. So they still want to ask that question you're going to set up the kingdom now, right? Like, yeah, you've been telling us that we don't understand the kingdom and the kingdom's not like what we think it is, but now you're going to do it, right? And I love Jesus' response because he basically is telling them, don't worry about how the movement's going to end because it's just getting started and you're going to be a part of it starting. And I love how the passage ends because it says that whenever he ascends up into heaven, they're just left standing there like just staring up at the sky. And I think I, I feel a special communion with the disciples in that moment because as I was thinking about the whole like Y2K story that I talked about before, like that night, like post, like minutes to midnight, we're out in the street looking up at the sky, like dead serious. Like we're looking up, like I'm ready for the street lights to go out. I'm ready for the sky to rip open. Like I was ready. Like, I mean, I only got to drive for a month and a half, but hey, you know, I accepted it. Like Jesus coming back is better than me driving. So maybe I can drive in heaven. Who knows? Anyway, but I'm like, so I was ready. And then the moment comes and nothing happens. And I can just almost imagine, like, I wonder if there were angels in that moment who were tempted to come down. Like, why are you looking at the sky like that? <laughs> like you guys are crazy. Like, you don't need to know when all these things are going to happen. There is a movement that still needs to be started. And we sometimes find ourselves in the same place as the disciples. We don't always understand why some things are the way they are. I can guarantee almost every person in this room has something in their life that they wish they understood deep, more deeply or wish they understood it all. They don't understand maybe why certain things have happened or not happened. And we often think that beginning to follow Jesus is somehow just going to magically fix all of those problems. I say yes to Jesus. Like there may be if some of you this last week that you prayed that prayer that I prayed at the end of the service. Like you put your trust in Jesus. I even talked to you some, some after who, who did that. And you may have had this preconception in your mind that by praying that prayer, magically all of my problems go away and I understand everything in my life exactly as, you know, as it can be understood. And then you're disappointed when it's like, I still have questions. I still don't understand. Things sometimes still don't make sense. And so even though there is a greater knowing that comes with having the Holy Spirit, there's still things that we may not know because maybe we couldn't handle it if we did know. See, Paul even, who, if anybody had the Spirit, Paul had the Spirit, and yet he was humble enough to write in 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve. He says, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. When Jesus returns, then we shall see face to face. And Jesus even hints at that, saying, someday when I return, you will ask no more questions. You'll know what you need to know. He says, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. See, like Jesus and the angel said to the disciples, there's much we don't know, but what we need to know, by the Spirit we will know and can know. And so this brings us back to what Jesus said in verse 8, where he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem 
in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so in a nutshell, Jesus is telling them the Spirit is going to bring this greater knowing than even seeing Jesus in the flesh did. Because he won't just be, in, he won't just be with you, he'll be in you. And see, this is what was unique, and it took probably the disciples a little while to figure out, and sometimes takes us a while to figure out, that we think, like, if I had to choose between having the Holy Spirit and having Jesus, like, I'd choose Jesus because to have, like, this physical being I can touch, and, like, and that's great. Like, man, to have Jesus physically with us would be great, but even Jesus knew he was physically limited in the world. He could only be in one place at one time. That, yes, with Jesus on the earth, you could walk with Jesus, but with the Spirit, you can walk like Jesus. You can become like Jesus. See, Jesus was saying it was better for the Holy Spirit to come because a greater movement begins with a greater knowing of Jesus. And that greater knowing is only going to come with the Holy Spirit And see, I love this picture that's painted by Jesus' succession of words where he says, you're going to be my witnesses. And then there's almost these like successive circles of saying in Jerusalem, which was the town, the city that they were in, and Judea and Samaria, where it was like, it's the region they're in. And then the regions adjacent to it, where they were kind of like us, but not quite like us. And it's like, you're going to be witnesses to those people that like you don't really get along with, that they kind of know what you're talking about, but they also kind of don't like you and you kind of don't like them. And yet you're still supposed to be witnesses to them. And then he finally doubles down and ends at the end with saying, and to the ends of the earth. He says, you're, even, you're going to go even there. The ends of the earth to regions and peoples as strange and as different as they are far away. See, this movement will be far greater than even the Holy Land can hold. Because God's original design was that all land in the earth would be holy lands. All the people would know. All would become witnesses of Jesus' saving power. And so with this passage, it sets up the mission of the kingdom perfectly. Jesus was calling his disciples to be witnesses of everything he had said and done. And they would recount all they had experienced with him. And while this sounds great and good over the centuries, of course... Sometimes we have made the phrase like being a witness for Jesus. We've turned it into something that maybe it wasn't supposed to be. That I don't know about you, but whenever I hear, and some of this just comes from my church background, you hear the phrase witnessing your faith or being a witness for your faith. I have this picture in my mind of like me wearing a sandwich board and arguing with people and trying to prove I'm right and trying to prove they're wrong and that they're going to hell and they need to know they're going to hell and like just trying to prove how wrong they are and how right I am. And I've sometimes questioned, even the way I've seen Jesus interact with people, if that's really what he had in mind when he talked about us being witnesses. Because here's the thing, and I think this is an important decision. Jesus needs witnesses, not lawyers. He needs witnesses, not lawyers. In fact, the people who were most often called lawyers, the teachers of the law, Jesus butted heads with them quite a bit. Saying, no, when you have the Holy Spirit and the power of the Spirit in your life, you don't need to convince anyone or argue with anyone about anything. It's the Spirit that changes hearts and minds and draws people to the Father. You just have to be a witness. I mean, think about a law court scene, both then and now. A, what did a witness do? A witness simply testified to what they saw, heard, 
experienced. Nothing else. In fact, even today, which I think back then, but even today, you can get thrown off the stand, like a witness can get thrown off the stand, for becoming argumentative. See, I think far too many times we think being a witness means I have to be argumentative. I have to prove the other person is right. That I'm essentially trying to usurp the role of the Holy Spirit in that person's life by trying to convince them of something that I can't possibly do because that's only by divine responsibility can someone's heart be changed. See, oftentimes we think being a witness means that I have to have all these clever arguments figured out and I have to have an answer to every single question and some clever way of turning it back and making the person look foolish and dumb. And you see this on TikTok and YouTube of like, man, look at this Christian apologist own this other person. I'm like, we shouldn't be owning anybody. We should be loving them, telling them about Jesus let the Holy Spirit own them. <laughs> if anybody's going to own anybody, God's owning stuff, not us. Now, granted, in 1 Peter 3.15, it does say, always be prepared to give an answer. And you're like, hearing that, like, okay, give an answer for what? For the hope that you have in Christ. That's the only answer you have to have prepared. To give an answer. So when someone asks... Why do you have hope? Why do you have the hope that you do? And what the answer is is not, well, because of these three legal reasons, ha <laughs> you're wrong and I'm right. It's like, no, because Jesus changed my life. Like, I can't help but tell you about what I've seen, what I've heard, what I've experienced through the Spirit. I can't help but share that. And then I'll let the Holy Spirit do his work in you that all, like, that's all I can do. Why do I have hope in Jesus? Because he changed my life. See, I was thinking about most of the time, like, I mean, even think about whenever you buy something, like you're wanting to buy something new or something like that. Most of the time, why we buy a particular product or brand that we do is not because someone sold it to us or convinced us to do it. Usually it's because of referral. Someone who has experienced it themselves and say, this is amazing and here are the reasons why. This was my experience. I'm like, I trust what that person says. Like, they don't seem like they would lie to me. So, okay, I'll, I'll try it out. And so when we're witnesses for our faith saying, this is what I've seen, this is what I've heard, this is what I've experienced in my relationship with God, then that coaxes someone, encourages them to taste and see that the Lord is good. That's what that is referring to. That's the power of our witness. We testify to what God has done in our lives. We share what Jesus can do with them as well, and then they can choose to believe it or not. Like you see this in John chapter 9 when Jesus, he heals a man that was born blind, which up till then nothing like that had ever been done. Blind people had been healed, but never someone born blind had never seen before in their lives. And I love the way the religious leaders, the lawyers, handle the situation because they just keep grilling him and asking him the same questions, trying to stop him up or, you know, get him to like change his story or something like that. And I love that the, the man who was blind and could see he doesn't try to convince them or argue his point. All he says over and over again is, I don't know what to tell you. I was blind, and now I can see. And Jesus did it. And then he, said, and he even says it tongue-in-cheek. Why do you want to become his disciple? Like, he's even evangelizing the religious leaders, saying, like, 
I don't know what else to tell you. I don't understand how it happened. I just don't. I couldn't see. Now I can see. That's my experience. You can choose to believe it or not, and that's on you. And we're to do the same. See, we're not just called to know a lot about Jesus. We're called to know Jesus. So how do we grow in intimate knowledge of Jesus? I mean, yes, obviously, it's always through the Holy Spirit that when we come to Christ, uh, we receive the Holy Spirit by faith. But practically speaking, how can we grow in intimacy with God? Well, the first way is to study the Word. See, even Jesus, when he is agonizing in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying for his disciples and his future disciples. And I'm going to actually come back to a passage around that in a minute. But in John 16, 17, he says this about the Word. He says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. See, for future generations, we would depend on the eyewitness accounts of those who walked and talked with Jesus before us. Their testimony laid the foundation of the church that carries us today. We can know the truth about God personally and intimately, but part of that is by and large because they touched the truth about God in Jesus, and we read it today, and it can transform us, and we go deeper, and the, the Spirit brings revelation from the Scriptures. And I, and I know it sounds cliche, and it sounds very simple, but regular Bible reading and meditation washes our minds with God's Word and helps us to know Jesus more intimately and more deeply. And so for those of you who maybe prayed a prayer, you know, this last week or recently you've surrendered your life to Christ, that is the first and best place to start, is to start reading the word. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you because the, he, Jesus said that the Spirit would remind you of the things that I've said. Illuminates the word of God. Gives us revelation of who God is and what he's doing in the world so that we can know him better and keep in step with what he's doing in the world. Now, another way that we can know Jesus personally is by spending time with him. Like literally getting away in times of silence and solitude, where we pray and we listen to the Spirit. And see, it's in times like this where intimacy is formed, because my wife and I are now in a season with little kids to where there is not a lot of silence in the house. Like, it's just, so if our intimacy is based on our, like, daily life and interactions with other, I feel like I can barely get a word in edgewise before one of my children interrupts us and kind of can break the flow of the intimacy that can begin to form. That It takes us, like, even this, my wife uh, had her birthday this last week, about a week and a half ago. And so literally we had to take a trip two days away, just her and me, because I know like if we don't have like consecrated time together where there's an intimacy forming, where there are no interruptions, there's no sounds, there's no distractions, um, that relationship is slowly going to wither on the vine, that I have to cultivate it and put fertilizer on it and, and, and grow it and things like that. And so that's what so times of silence and solitude does with the Lord, that when we spend time away with the Lord daily, praying, but not just praying, listening too. Like, did you know God can speak to you? He can still speak. He still speaks by his Holy Spirit through his word. But even in the depths of our hearts, the Spirit can speak to us. And when we connect with the Lord daily in his presence, we get to know him more and more. Because see, here's the deal. The world needs people who know God, not just know about him. 
religion knows about God and things and spiritual things. Most of the damage done in the world is through religious leaders and people who know a lot about God but don't actually know God, have never surrendered themselves in any kind of personal or intimate way. See, the world needs witnesses of who Jesus is, not lawyers arguing about what Jesus said or did. Guys, we've had enough of religion. We need more relationship. And it starts with us here today. And so here is what I'm going to do to end our time together. I want to uh, lead us through a time of uh, scripture reflection, a spiritual practice. And we've done this at the end of, ser- of services before. And I'm actually going to, uh, for Newton and Shelbyville who are watching online, hi guys, by the way, I forgot to greet you at the beginning. Love you guys. Hello. Uh, <laughs> the campus pastors at each campus are actually going to lead their campus through this reflection practice. So I'll actually uh, give just a brief pause to allow the stream to close out so uh, uh, Jonathan and Van can lead their campuses through that practice. And so what I want to do is there's a passage that I want, to, I, want, I want to read over you guys. It's not going to be on the screen because I want you guys to just hear the word of God. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to read this passage several times. And I'm going to give periods of silence in between them just to allow you to reflect, allow you to listen to the Spirit, to allow the Spirit to speak to you and and let you engage in the text in the way that the Holy Spirit wants you to engage in the text. I'm not going to tell you what the text means. I mean, sermons and messages have their part in the spiritual life, but sometimes there is just power in the, in the public reading of Scripture and allowing not me putting a filter on it for you, but instead just allowing you to hear the Word of God. And I may ask a question or so, uh, give just a little bit of a prompt before each reading to you know, give you some tools to use to interact with the Holy Spirit as you hear this text. Um, so just... I encourage you, go ahead and close your eyes. Since the scripture is not going to be on the screen, just close your eyes and hear the word of God. And as I read the text this first time, I want you to just pay attention to any words or phrases that strike you, that come off more significant than maybe the other words around it, that strike you in some way. Maybe it prompts an emotional response, a uh, 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 a thrill of joy, uh, maybe tears. Um, but just pay attention to those words and phrases and don't try to figure them out or figure out what they mean, but just pay attention and hold on to them as I read the text this first time. John 17, verse 20 through 26. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. 
Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Now, as I read the text a second time, I want you to pay attention to where in my life, like what part of my life is touched by this text? Like the words that God has for me contained in this passage, what part of my life needs to hear these words right now? John 17, 20 through 26. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and see my glory, the glory you have given because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. And now in the third reading of this text, I want you to consider what invitations from God might he be extending to me through this passage? What might the Holy Spirit be asking me to do or to be? And how, how will I and how do I respond to those invitations?
John 17, 20 through 26. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. And in this final reading, I want to invite you to just rest in God's presence, holding what you feel like the Spirit has already spoken to you. Just rest in God's arms as the text is read, like a child rests in the arms of its mother, content, needing nothing but to be with the one you love. John 17, 20 through 26. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world may not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them.
Father, I thank you for your word that you've given us, that word that is truth, and your spirit, which is with us and in us, that reminds us of everything Jesus has said. God, I thank you that through these, the spirit and the word, we can know you intimately. That we don't just have to know ideas about you, but we can know you as a person. And so, God, I pray as we go out into the world as witnesses, not just the professional ordained pastors, but every single follower of Jesus, that we are called to be your witnesses in the world, simply relaying to others what we have experienced with you. So, God, I pray that we would have deep experiences with you every single day as we spend time with you, as we study your word as we are led by your spirit, God, let us have deep, intimate experiences with you, God, to give us fuel to minister to those around us so that when someone does ask that question, why do you have the hope you have? We can answer truthfully and fully and honestly because I know Jesus and he changed my life and he can change yours too. God, as we go out into the world, remind us that we are your sent ones in the world, that we are your hands and we are your feet. We are your witnesses to the ends of the earth. Empower us by your spirit to be faithful in that commission as we see a greater movement of Jesus break out in the world. And it's your name we pray and for your glory. Amen.